1: Re-enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? We got an interesting email this week. He says
0: You know, Carol, after reading your book, I realized that you are really a rough and tough therapist. And I thought that was so funny because I am very direct and I am very honest and I want so badly for the people that I work with to really understand and get what they need to do to get healthy. So, am I rigorously honest? Absolutely. Do I want, do I want to hurt anybody's feelings? Heck no. I am all about Delivering the message so that you hear it, you get it, and you use it. And that's why Help Her Heal, an empathy workbook for sex addicts to help their partners heal, is just very direct. It's very in in your face. I mean, but it doesn't put anybody down. I mean, I'm consistently reminding the addicts that are reading the book that they cause this and they have to figure out what to do to make it right. That is one of the things that I am 100% doing. But at the same time, I also give them a lot of hope that they are in good recovery, that they do want their life to be different, that they are willing to do what it takes, that they are attending to her needs. And when you are willing to do whatever it takes to right the wrong And create a power differential where you pretty much let her make a lot of the choices and decisions right up front to encourage her and to help her find safety, to begin to restore trust. I mean, that doesn't come for a long time, you know. It's not in the first month. It's not even the first three months. I would say it typically comes um, anywhere after 12 months. She has got to see you walk your talk. So I hope that you all will be interested in this workbook. It really does create a way. It teaches empathy. It teaches reflective listening. It teaches uh, feeling identification. I mean, it does a lot of incredible um, awareness for the skills that you need to restore a relationship that's been fractured. And I am super excited to be having my co-author, Alan Katz. You know, they call him, I do believe it's the intimacy coach. And what I love about that is that he helps people work on intimacy. And so he wrote, Several of the chapters on intimacy, and I'm just so excited to have him on because his work—he's just one of those men, you know. I—he attended one of my workshops um, for our certified sexual addictions therapy. Um, the conference was actually—it's every year, and it—it it helps to keep you new and fresh. And he attended my workshop. He—he he put together this incredible packet of information, and I said, Alan, this is really good, and you got this from my material, and he said, yes, and I said, hey, let's write a book together, and so he's going to be talking about the connection between empathy and the different forms of intimacy, he, and, you know, I know all you guys, whether you're partners or addicts, you want intimacy. So, it's an important topic, and I'm excited that we got somebody who's going to be talking about what are the eight forms of intimacy? You've heard of the five love languages. Well, what are the eight forms of intimacy? And what is the connection between empathy and emotional intimacy? And of course, we're going to be talking about connections. When we're talking about sex addiction and partner betrayal, we're also going to be talking about roadblocks. So, I know. This is the show for you, whether you're in a relationship or not. Everybody needs to work on intimacy. And everybody needs to know what's normal. And you know there are no normals, but I do have to say there are some predictable experiences that one can have that, you know, it may not feel normal to you. I can say, hey, that's absolutely normal. Just like I said, it takes over a year for, for a partner to rebuild trust. Now, somebody, it might take three years. But the general consensus on my end is that it takes anywhere from 12 to 16 months to really start building back that trust. So be patient. Know that it, it, it actually comes pretty quickly. Um, If you're doing the next right thing. And, you know, feel free to submit questions if you've got them. At at carolthecoach.com. We are your very own personalized mental health therapists and coaches. Giving you some direction. Helping you create the skills you need. And hopefully actualizing your potential. That is what we want to do. And um, I was just talking to some men today, and they they were saying, you know, it can be so very tough to get back to a new normal. You know, anniversary dates are tough, birthdays are tough, Father's Day is tough, Mother's Day is tough nobody knows what how should we celebrate this. We don't wanna we don't want to create a scenario where we're not acknowledging the pain. And I say that's good. I always talk about the fact that when you are working on a skill, let's say assertiveness, okay? I'm teaching the addict How to be assertive, because there are four types of communication, and they are passive, where you let anybody walk right over you, and aggressive, that's where you attack others. Passive-aggressive, that's when you get somebody back behind their back, and then assertive. And assertive means that you're clear and direct about what you need, how you feel, and what you believe. It does not mean you get what you want. Well, when I talk to addicts about how to be assertive, I ask them to be very gentle, to start with the sandwich approach. That's when you start with a statement that says, hey, I absolutely know that you may think I have no right to share this feeling, but I'm working on being transparent with you. So what I want to say is that I would really like To start celebrating birthdays again. I think they're important. I think we need to be able to figure out how to do them and and make you feel comfortable. And I'm willing to start out really slow because that will actually make you feel better. And then you sandwich it at the bottom. You say... And I realize this is a risk for you because the last thing you want to do is create a new normal if I'm going to slip a relapse. But I want you to know I'm really working hard. Okay, so you've sandwiched it at the top with the pain she must be feeling and your trepidation about being assertive. Then you're sharing what you want and then you're wrapping it up with how you are the new and different even if She's scared to believe that, and you don't blame her. Okay, that is how you do assertiveness. And now, as I said, I'm really excited to um, be talking with Alan J. Katz. He is my co-author for Help Her Heal, and he is the intimacy coach. So, Alan, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Can you hear me?
0: I sure can. Can you hear me okay?
2: Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. I just heard a little voice say I was muted, so I got nervous. Oh,
0: you're not. Yeah, how nervous. are you? You're Thank you for having me. Wrong.
2: Okay, thanks for having me on tonight.
0: Oh, you're very welcome. I'm thrilled to have you on because, you know, sex addicts and their partners, they want to know about intimacy. So tell me, how did you initially, you know, how did you get
1: joined the intimacy coach? Oh,
2: okay. So, I um, I actually took a course uh, on LinkedIn mm-hmm. with a with a friend of mine, and I had uh, these butterflies as my uh, logo, and she didn't she didn't think that was proper, and she um, she said I needed to change that, and so I I decided that I needed a tagline for my, my business, uh, rediscovery coaching and rediscovery counseling and coaching. So I just came up with this little topic because that's really what I, I like to focus on because I feel that that's, what's really missing uh, for a lot of couples. You know, a lot of couples just think it's, um, sex or there's just one form of intimacy. Um, and that's, that's sexual intimacy, but really there's lots of different types of intimacy and so that's what I like to teach and that's so so I picked that as my slogan and actually um since October my uh, volume of business has, has doubled just um, just 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 from changing the logo and the and the uh, the little title underneath and a few words on my website, so um, it's working. <laughs> so I'm sticking with it.
0: Well, that is fantastic, and it is interesting how branding and marketing can make all the difference. Now, you have the oh, yeah. belief that there are eight types of intimacy, right? That they eight Correct. types of intimacy. Tell us a little bit about that, Alan.
2: Okay, so there are eight for so there's eight forms of eight stages of intimacy. Okay, so there's number one. Number one is physical intimacy. That's basically you know seeing somebody that 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 you found attractive, and it's kind of like the chemistry. Okay, and then number seven is sexual intimacy. And so, what happens in our what happens in our society probably since the beginning of time is that people go from one to seven right away. You Meet somebody in a bar and you take them home, and you have sexual. I wouldn't call it intimacy yet, but um, so what. And the problem is, is that we can't figure out why we can't have a long lasting relationship. And the reason is is because we we're skipping uh, two, three, four, five, and six of the eight stages. So I'm going to explain that. That's just what I tell my clients. So I just want to, um, so number two is aesthetic intimacy, which is art style, culture, general compatibility, just being able to have similar interests in music, art, theater, things like that. Uh, Number three is recreational intimacy, shared interests, sports and hobbies. You love spending time together. Uh, you love just having new experiences together and I think the most important part of this one is you do not get upset if the partner spends time without you pursuing their own interests because I've found that um, the healthy couples um, they, they allow each other or they encourage each other to go out and do things you know for themselves individually but of course they also have plenty of time together to, uh, to share, Um, you know, because otherwise it's a very controlling kind of relationship and that's not healthy. You know, if you can't go out and explore and do some things for yourself. Um, Number four. Although
0: can I ask you something? You're talking about Hmm. intimacy in in the normal couple. And you know when sex addiction occurs and discovery has occurred, oftentimes the couple is afraid to be autonomous for fear that she'll think I'm cheating or he'll want to cheat. And so you're going to have to share how that gets rectified in couples that have had such a severe fracture.
2: Right. Um... So that's a good question. Um, so we, we we like to put in place uh, for our sex addicts and their partners, we like to put in place, you know, different forms of um, uh, boundaries, so to speak. So what a lot of people do is they, you know, the wife or the partner, whoever the, par- I mean, the, the betrayed partner has some type of, device on their cell phone, which tells them where that person is. So if I, if I say I'm going with my friends to the you know, the YMCA, she can see on my cell phone that that's where I am. Um, so, you know, that, that takes away a lot of the, it builds the trust back with the wife, knowing that you're saying, you know, you're saying where you are is where you really are. Um, So that's, that's just one example. Um, But you're right, right at the beginning, you know, there's, I I have clients like who used to travel out of town and they have uh, kind of curtailed their, their travel experience out of town because the wife is triggered by them, you know, being gone. And so, you know, we have to just take it slowly and give them an opportunity to, build that trust back with their partner. Does that well, the answer the question?
1: Answer
0: because I agree with you that it has to be built back slowly. And it sounds like you've figured out some of those accountability tools that can ensure that he really is speaking his truth and working on developing that honesty. So okay. Let's right. go back over the intimacy you just talked about because I know we've got a couple of other ones. You said recreational, right. you said sexual, what else? Emotional,
2: uh, physical, I'm getting to, yeah, intellectual is number four. And that is having a simil, similar hopes, fears, opinions, and beliefs. Um, you know, it's, it's hard, like people that are, are in different religions, it's very hard to you know, to get along because some, sometimes those beliefs become uh, blurred or, or, you know, political opinions, all those kinds of things can cause people to uh, start arguing. Um, okay, so number five is spiritual intimacy, morality, ethics, shared experiences and shared goals um, with no codependency in your relationship that's what this author says. I I have a little problem with that because I think in every, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but in every relationship there's a little bit of, always a little bit of codependency because, you know, we're we're really dependent on the other person for some things.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing Um, that I was thinking as you, as you shared the different types and you did that also in the book and, I do believe that it is more challenging when you do share different political beliefs or religious beliefs. But in an emotionally mature relationship, there should be some acknowledgement that that's going to happen. And is it easier if both people are Catholic or Jewish or Democrat or Republican? Probably is easier, but certainly not insurmountable if you have two people that are right. on the opposite sides of the street.
2: Right. There was that famous couple that uh, were, I think, I think it was President Clinton's uh, one of his advisors, and he was a he was a Democrat and she was a Republican and they were married and it was a I can't remember the name. Yeah, of the
0: Carvel. Guy. Uh-huh. That's right, Carmen.
2: exactly.
0: And and they enjoyed right. playing off of each other. You know what I mean? They kind yeah. of were a team. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And, uh, presenting yeah. the opposite opinions. So, right. so, let me ask you something because are there roadblocks um, when you're when you're trying to develop empathy and an emotional intimacy? Mm-hmm. Are there some roadblocks?
2: Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of roadblocks because, uh, you know, em- emotional intimacy is about sharing feelings, trust, security, and safety. And we have to accept the the person for who they are. When couples have emotional intimacy, they're comfortable sharing anger, happiness, secrets, sensual, and sexual feelings. When that trust is broken. Um, with, which has becomes a roadblock, empathy is needed to make sure the betrayed partner is understood by the betrayer. And I think that's what I, when our book really gets the point across is that uh, we, that's what the wife keeps saying wife. But that's what the betrayed partner um, needs is just that reassurance that you really understand, you know, how your actions have, have really affected me. And so there's there's going to be a tearing in the emotional intimacy there, um, and so th- there's a connection there too, because you know empathy is an emotion of being able to understand and um, feel put yourself in the shoes of the other person um, but of, of course, again, the roadblocks are that you have to take things slow and somebody is not going you know, to give in right away to, uh, you know, just forget it, that was in the past, let's move on. You know, that's, that's a common thing that people that don't have these skills yet uh, say to each other, you know, just get over it, that was in the past. You know? But to the, to the spouse that, that was betrayed, that's a big um, – she, she's been traumatized, and that's a big roadblock to, emo- to emotional intimacy because we, cause we're afraid to talk about our feelings now because I'm afraid to talk to you because you're going to yell at me, and I'm afraid, you know, to tell the guy that betrayed me to talk about my feelings because it's just going to cause an argument. So they're, they're, those are the ro- kind of the roadblocks of – being able to get back to the emotional intimacy part.
0: Well, that makes a lot of sense. And so what do you think about part, well, you know, any couple, but certainly when there's been um, a fracturing, what do you think about couples that, for whatever reason, don't want to be sexual with each other? Um, what what can one do to slowly introduce sexual intimacy back into the relationship?
2: Well, I think first of all there there needs to be some type of cooling off period, especially when when there's um, you know pornography involved. There needs to be some clearing of the head to get all those chemicals out of the brain, um, and also the 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 betrayed partner has to feel comfortable enough to to want to have, you know, get back into a sexual a relationship with somebody. And so I know that um sex therapists um use the uh, sensate focusing which is um it's a it was developed by Masters and Johnson back in I think in the 60s or 70s um where you slowly build up, um, the touch, non-sexual touch, like, just like maybe holding hands, um, giving back rubs, you know, just things like that, that are not sexual necessarily, but they still, uh, are touching, you know, so you, you still have some form of intimacy. Um, and then eventually building up to, you know, sexual intimacy, um,
0: and so you're saying find, find comfortable and safe ways of touching and then build on those
2: right cuz i think for the i think for the sex addict um, in a lot of cases you know everything has been about sex and so the the, the partner uh, senses that and they think that you know every time he touches me he wants sex you know and we have to get, that's part of, of get building the trust back is to convince and show your partner that, yes, sex is important, but I'm showing you uh, affection or attention with no expectations of anything. And once that partner relaxes and accepts that, they don't feel pressured anymore that, okay, he's touching me, I'm, I, he's, he, he's going to want to have sex. Um, They feel a sense of safety again, and then they're going to be a lot more willing to, um, you know, go back to having a sexual relationship.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And by introducing this slowly, one can gauge how sincere the other person is, and is there any manipulation, or would it end up being too to, um, uh, one of the things that I know is that oftentimes it's scary to have sex. I mean, if you're an addict, you've trained your brain to be aroused in a certain way, and sometimes you can't perform as a result of it. Or as you just said, right. Alan, that you know sometimes the brain needs to calm down, and so to introduce sex, too early in the relationship after a discovery and the sex addict's working on his or her recovery, it might fire it up again. And so we want to be really respectful of what are all the needs that a couple has and how do you compromise and negotiate those needs? Um, And so I know you do a lot of work.
1: Yeah, go ahead.
2: Oh, I was going to say that – for some couples, just the, the idea of talking about sex is kind of, um, I, don't, I wouldn't say taboo, but it's just something, you know, we, we don't talk about. And so for some couples, it takes years for, for someone to just even say, what, what do you, what do you like? You know, what do you like in the bedroom? And what do you like? Instead, we, we just kind of play it by ear and, and, Hope that what we're doing is going to be satis- satisfying, but it takes it takes a maturity, I think, to be able to um, talk just talk about it. Well, you know, what do you like? What do I like? You know, and, and let's uh, try that out or something.
0: And so then you help couples to talk about. Their feelings, their needs, and their beliefs about sex, correct? Yes. And do you always do that face to face, or do you do that using Zoom or Skype or phone coaching?
2: Um, I most of my I mean, most of my couples have done face to face in person. I do have a couple of clients in my state that I do some phone coaching. Uh, it's a little more difficult to um, do that. So I, I have some materials that I I have, like, these little what I call recovery kits that I give out for um, healthy sexuality for couples. And it, it goes through some exercises, and it goes through these eight stages of intimacy, um, and so my couples find it very, very helpful. So if I was, if I was doing a phone session, then I would, um, you know, I would send them that in a, in, a, uh, in an email, and, and they could take advantage of it.
0: Well, that's interesting. And this, these packets, can they buy that on your website, or is that solely a result of their work with you?
2: Well, right now, it's a, it's a result of work with me, but I would be I would be happy to send it out to anyone who um, who wants it. They would just have to send me an email, and I'll send it to them. However, you want to handle that. But it's not freely done on my website, and I don't charge for it. It's just uh, it's something I, I came up with for my clients, but I'm happy to uh, share it. Well. Actually-
0: Excellent, excellent. So just tell us a little bit about those packets. If somebody wanted to email you, how would they email you?
2: So my email address is uh, ajk at uh, alanjkatz.com. And it's A-L-L-A-N-J, is in Jacob, K-A-T-Z.com. And you can just say, um, so the name of this kit is, um, hold on. The Healthy Sexuality Kit. No, I'm sorry, the Healthy Intimacy Kit.
0: Well, that is fantastic. Yeah, I'm going to send you an email and ask for one of them. I want to see what you're doing there. (laughs) I think okay. it's wonderful that, that people can work with you face-to-face, but if they did want to work with you via Zoom or Skype, they could email you and, and see if you had an opening for them? Sure, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So now let's get back to talking about intimacy. And, and you say that empathy is a right brain-feeling emotion. And how does intellectual intimacy help that?
2: So intellectual intimacy is is all about hopes, fears, opinions, and beliefs, which in some form is a left-brain function. So when you have this form of intimacy, you discover how to mirror each other, validate each other's points of view, and exchange ideas, dreams, and goals. So sharing with your partner questions like, what do you consider your greatest accomplishment? How do you define success? What do you stand for religiously or spiritually? Where do you stand on society's view of betrayal? And do you think societal lack of mores and values play a part in the escalation of betrayal in our society? That's a long-winded question, you know. To kind of get into the reasons why, you know, you betrayed me, um, trying to figure out, you know, because you don't want to blame it on society, but there's been, maybe to some people, there's been a uh, loosening up of, you know, what what our morals and values are, in my opinion. Um, So, you have to be able to, um, you know, talk about those different in, intimacy, intimacy things, hopes, fears, opinions, and beliefs in an intellectual way, and and then again, when you do that, that sorry, that builds, it, it works with empathy, so that you can show that you understand what that person is saying, what they're feeling what their opinions are. It doesn't mean we have to agree with every single thing, but it just means that, you know, empathy is I'm putting myself in your shoes. I can see how you feel that way, or I can see how you might believe that way. And I can get along with you still, even though we may have differing beliefs, values, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And, and Does that make you any know, sense? What I mean- yeah, it totally makes sense. So if a couple doesn't have really good communication skills and they're not really left brain, they're not really intellectual, you coach them as to how to do this, correct?
2: Yes, I do. <clears throat> okay.
0: And and right. so that's got to be kind of slow, I would think. Um Because you're kind of working on two different intimacies or emotions at one point. You're talking about empathy, which is a right brain feeling emotion, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. And then you're talking about why it would be important to have empathy and to show your emotions. And you know, in the book, it talks about the five primary feelings, anger, sadness, loneliness, fear, and happiness. And then it also talks about shame and guilt. How do you think shame and guilt gets in the way of those emotions?
2: Are you talking about the um, intellectual emotion, the intellectual intimacy? Yes. Well, a lot of times we don't want to talk about these types of things we don't We don't want to talk about our fears or opinions and beliefs because we may get um, <clears throat> disagreed with <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so we may have some shame and shame and guilt around things that we've done, and so the person with that shame and guilt may not want to talk about those things uh, because they may get judged, but this is the whole, the whole idea is to be vulnerable enough in your relationship um, to be able to discuss these things uh, without, you know, without the shame or guilt. And I think, you know, speaking about that, I think that's one of the advantages of some of the, you know, the 12 step programs is that we can, we can, talk about our shame and guilt in a forum where we're not, we know we're not going to be judged. And that's what the the healing process really is, because the one thing we don't want to do when we have shame is to talk about it because that's what shame is. But that of course, the only way to get past shame is to talk about it because then it's out in the open and um, we're not carrying it around with us and letting it, uh, you know, affect our our psyche and our, our bodies.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I agree. Vulnerability is so important in developing empathy and in developing an emotional intimacy. So how do you explain vulnerability to your clients?
2: Well, I <clears throat> I always recommend that they watch the the famous um, TED Talk video by Brene Brown on shame and vulnerability, uh, which made her famous. It's only about twenty minutes, but I've had even in my groups that I used to do, I've had so many people really uh, become positively affected by that um, that film. So I. Um, you know, vulnerability is just—it's hard because we think if we're vulnerable, we're going to get criticized. But really, it's kind of kind of counterintuitive because uh, the more vulnerable we are, the more we become respected. I think by our partners, especially. You know, most of our partners want us—they would rather us be tell them the truth and be vulnerable that yeah, we, we slipped or we, we made a mistake or we said something wrong. Um, we, they would rather us be honest about that up front than them having to, you know, find out something that we did or that we're holding back and not telling them. So that's where vulnerability is really important in building back the trust and empathy in the relationship.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree, and I, that's certainly three things that a partner wants from a sex addict in recovery. The first one is that the partner wants to know that he recognizes her pain, and he sees it, and he knows that he caused it. So, you know, there, there is one thing. The other thing is that she wants the addict to really work on vulnerability, She really wants him to share his vulnerable emotions. And let's face it, men in this society have not been encouraged to do that, let alone men that are, for lack of a better phrase, in the doghouse because they've committed some infraction. Now, I have a question for you. Alan, I want to know: Do you think societal norms and values, or lack of them, kind of play a part in the escalation of betrayal?
2: Uh, actually, I really do. Um, you know, it's the the like, kind of like in the Me Too movement. You know, we we don't we don't um, agree with sexualizing and objectifying women. On the other hand, in society, in norms, you know all the, the a lot of ads, you know they're still selling cars with very pretty women you know standing next to it. Um, but uh, you know magazines that we see, movies, TV shows, there's so much um, sexual innuendo and objectification and sexualization of women that it's very hard not to have that affect our society and not have have it affect us. You know, I I know like in, in Judaism, for example, there's, um, you know, there's a certain sect of Judaism, which, you know, are very closed off from the rest of society and they dress a certain way and um, you know, different than everybody else. And, you know, now with the internet, and, and everybody's having a cell phone, it's, it's this, this whole little thing of um, objectification and pornography and all those things are starting to infiltrate, you know, this, uh, this very uh, religious community. And um, it's really having a very detrimental effects on, on that, that part of the population. But think about it. You know what about kids? You know, kids are starting to look at at porn now at nine and ten years old, and and the worst kind of porn. You know, it's not it's not the soft porn that you know we used to look at in uh, in Playboys in the sixties and seventies. You know, this is you know just just the fact of a a video is, is so addictive that you know people that may not even have had an addiction before they can look at a video like this and they become addicted. So, you know, it's just, um, to me, it's a, you know, anything goes kind of society. And this is, I, I believe, has really uh, escalated a uh, betrayal um because I like just tonight I was having a group I had my uh, sex addiction group tonight, and one of the guys was saying i don't I don't understand why my wife is so upset it, it was just sex with somebody else it's, it's no big deal everybody does that i don't I don't know what the big deal is but, but you know that's there's no moral there's no morality there no value of of listening to what another person is going through you know so i I, the answer is yes. That was a long, long-winded answer. But.
0: And, you know, I, you know, one of the things that I really believe is that that's where a group can be so helpful because here this man is. He's indoctrinated into believing that casual sex is not that big of a deal, and it shouldn't be as offensive as it is because he's been so desensitized. And so that's when the group can go, dude, what are you doing? Of course she's going to be upset, you know. She doesn't want you looking at other women's bodies. She doesn't want you doing porn. She doesn't want you to have sex. Um, And and can kind of be a wake-up call for somebody who doesn't even know what their own morality is anymore. And it's just kind of been whitewashed.
2: Right. Because one of the so guys in the group said, uh, you know, uh, go ahead. Sorry. What he Oh, he said, well, what religion, you know, like what's your religious belief? And he said, I don't have a religion, you know, so it, it kind of all fit in. Like there's no, there's no sense of where, where are we, where are we getting the, the, the moral values and, you know, that, that, that we've all learned, you know, like what's what's right and what's wrong, you know. You can say, so he said, know, uh, do unto others as um, you want to be done unto. That was his motto, which, of course, comes from, comes from the Bible anyway. But, um, you know, that, that doesn't excuse the, the fact that, you know, well, yeah, I'm going to do this with this other person, but I'm also ignoring the fact that I – made a vow to my spouse that I wasn't going to do this, you know.
0: Yeah. So, okay, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, I want to know what you think is the most important arrangement that a couple can make to keep their relationship strong.
2: the most important thing that a couple can do to make their relationship strong. So I have a really have like three. Okay. So, um, okay. but set boundaries, set boundaries for the betrayed partner, set boundaries. And then the the partner, the betrayer, so to speak has to respect them. Uh, number two, make the recovery a priority in the relationship along with your partner and number three, build trust through action and empathy. And I think if, if you can do that, um, I, think, I think the statistics are um, if both partners are working individually in therapy and then they're going to couples therapy to work through some of this, that there's a 90% chance that uh, they can save their marriage. And so... Uh, in my practice as a CSAT, i I am there to help people save their marriage to the best of my ability now it, i i've I've saved a lot of marriages um but of course there are some where you know maybe they it would be better if they got divorced you know so but the, the these three things are really important um you know you know one of the things while we're talking is that um the betrayer sometimes has trouble setting boundaries because they, they say, or what, you know, even talking about what they need because they feel guilty that they're the ones that caused this. And now, you know, that they don't have any more rights at all. So um, this, uh, you know, that's true to some extent, but I think um, that in some instances, in some other parts of their relationship, they do have a right to say how they feel and and, um, set some boundaries for themselves also.
1: And so what
0: might some of those boundaries be? Give us a couple of examples.
2: Okay. So, um, for example, if a person has a pornography problem um you know, having the having someone, you know, have the the um passcode to, you know, the, the filter that's blocking uh the pornography um giving access to the wife of their phone, um that that's hard to do for some people, you know, but the point is the 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 betrayed partner uh, does not need to be, you know, a private eye and checking every little thing, but she, but it, it does build the trust back if she can uh, have access to his phone when she wants it. That doesn't mean she needs to be glued to it. Um, so that's that's another boundary: is is open access, open communication. Um, let's see. And so for the for the. Um, the betrayer, you know, he may want to, um, you know, go out with his buddies and, and play golf or something. So um, he, he can set a boundary saying that, um, you no, know, this is the one thing I'm going to do and it's going to be on this day and, you know, I'm going to check in with you um, while I'm there. Or if, or if somebody's going out of town, you know, and, and the wife, um the betrayed partner is uh is nervous that uh, they're going to get triggered, so the um the betrayer who's out of town could set up some boundaries or she can set up boundaries for him or both both so that they can know that each one is safe and you know not acting out
0: yeah that's that's um A really good example of, you know, being able to decide what will make you feel safe if you're a partner or what will make her feel safe as a partner. And, you know, in our book, Help Her Heal, the Empathy Workbook for Sex Addicts to Help Their Partners Heal, it talks about Mm -hmm. willingness. And, wow, that means that an addict in good recovery needs to ask himself, Am I willing? Am I willing to do what it takes to increase that sense of safety? It's not always going to have to be that way, but probably for the first 12 to 16 months of recovery, it's got to be that way so that the trust can reform. And and that's asking an addict to give up a lot of control. Wouldn't you agree?
2: Absolutely yeah because you're, so, you're giving up control of your of your phone of your um you know mm-hmm. devices all kinds of things you're, you're where you go where you are you know all those things you so, keep and it I keeps you UN... on
0: you and i had talked sorry, Ra- uh, about yeah Yeah, I remember remember that you and I had talked about a couple that just didn't seem to be getting healthy. You know, no matter what he did, uh, it didn't seem to be making a difference for her. And I do agree. There are some partners that no matter what he does, that it isn't going to make a difference. But what I have seen in, in about 12 to 16 months of trying A partner can take an unbelievable turn for the better. You know, it looks like there's no hope. She is just as mistrusting as ever. She attacks him. She doesn't notice all the wonderful changes he's making. And then, bam, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it clicks. And so for our addicts out there, please give it time. The, the brain takes time to heal, and her brain, has, well, she has trauma brain. I mean, she, her executive functioning is gone, and it may take up to two years for that to really get better. So, Alan, as we begin to end, is there any words of wisdom you want to impart on our listening audience to give them hope, encouragement, and, and coach
1: them through this
0: process?
2: sure um you know we we're, we're talking about uh a year or two of uh, depending on the extent of the betrayal sometimes um, one of the one of the tricks that I've used that's re- really helped is that uh, a lot of um a lot of people that have acted out become very defensive when they're attacked by their um the betrayed partner, and I've encouraged them to kind of uh, agree, yes, I did that, I'm working on it, Uh, what can I do to build a trust back with you, that kind of thing, instead of becoming defensive, um, and that's really shortened the the time frame for the wife, I keep saying the wife, the the betrayed partner, to... um, to really look at, look at this differently because they, they immediately see that the betrayer is acting differently. And especially when, like when they, when they read our book and they become learn how to be empathetic and uh, the, the spouse sees that and feels that experiences that they become, they, they start to trust. And a lot of times it can take earlier than, uh, you know, a year or two to, uh, for them to recover and get better. But, you know, that, so that gives them a little hope that um, if they're, you know, if, pe- if people can get into the mode of of acceptance that this is a disease and people, most people have been having this, this hole in their soul way before they even met the, the partner, and that it's really their issue too, then they can have a little bit more acceptance and eventual forgiveness. And a lot of times that'll take less time than than the average. So I hope that gives people a little hope and encouragement. It's definitely possible, but you've got to, you have to each be in therapy and then in couples therapy, you've got to be working in the workbooks. and going to meetings, and like we said before, making recovery your priority for both of you.
0: Oh, that is good advice. And thank you so much for having helped me write that book. I tell everybody you were the impetus to get me going from the packet that you made me to then um, my commitment to get Uh on this when you said you would, would also add to the book. So I thank you so much, and May we do some workshops together and just keep helping our addicts help her heal.
2: Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I appreciate you having me on, and it was a pleasure uh, being there for your audience and for you again.
0: Well, thank you, Alan. You take care and make it a good week.
2: All right, thank you. You too. Have a good night.
0: All righty. And again, that was Alan Katz, and he—he's just done so much. He—he he really is a prolific writer, and really got me going on making a difference in this project because I had really wanted to write this book, and I just knew if I was going to write it, I needed to commit to somebody, and he was my guy. So. I really, really appreciate that. And I just want to tell you, again, if you want to give him a call, if you want that packet he was talking about, I want to tell you that he is known as the Healthy Intimacy Coach. And he is out of Memphis, Tennessee. He, is, uh, he does, He's written several books, Addictive Entrepreneurship and Experiential Group Therapy. Interventions with DBT, a 30-day program for treating addictions and trauma. Okay, that's Alan J. Katz, A-L-L-A-N-J, period, K-A-T-Z. And that's it for now. We can't wait to see you again. You have a happy 4th of July. Fireworks are my thing with my husband, so I am just like, super excited whenever fireworks occur. Literally, we met in Chicago uh, watching fireworks. And so think about something that maybe you can do to redevelop or rekindle a great, a great life, a great experience, if you will. And I've got five sentences I want you to remember for developing empathy and validating feelings, and they are, I can imagine that, blah, 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 blah. I can only imagine, blah, 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 blah. It makes sense to me, blah, 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 blah. What I hear you saying, and the story that I make up about that, when you can give your wife or husband empathy, and say, yeah, I can only imagine that you're in a great deal of pain, and I want you to know I remembered those dates, too, and I love you, and I'm going to keep working on making this relationship better, you will have developed some good empathy. You're listening to Carol the Coach and as I say at the end of every show, there will only be one of you at all times fearlessly have the courage to be
1: yourself. We'll see you next week.